Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you all for joining. Um, today, we have the great honor and privilege of having Mr. Eric Hale with us. Eric, a non-smoker, was diagnosed in 2013 with stage 3A lung cancer at the age of 30. And in that year, he underwent radiation treatment, chemotherapy, and a lobectomy to remove half of his left lung. And after one recurrence and another surgery in 2019, Eric is now healthy and thankful that he gets to spend time um, and his days with his family, um, his wife, Aloy, and their 16-month-old son, Aviv, at their home in Broomfield, Colorado. Uh, Eric is a first-time author and hopes to get his first original novel, a thriller, published later this year. And um, he's joining us today with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative to share his story. So Eric, thank you so much for your time and willingness to be here with us. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, for inviting me. It's, it's a great opportunity, especially for someone young like me. Not a lot of people meet young lung cancer survivors. So I'm happy to be here and share my story. Awesome, thank you so much. So before we get started, um, we just want to introduce um, ourselves. My name is Franca, and with me I have um, Basu, Anish, and Drake, and we're all part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative. And in a little bit, I have just some slides to share a little bit of who we are for those who might not um, know, be familiar with our organization. Um, but first, I just wanted to launch two polls um, with questions to just to get an idea of the audience that we have today. So if everyone could just um, take a few minutes to, to fill out the poll, that would be awesome. It looks like we have almost everyone. So these are the results. Um, it's great to see that a lot of people know about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So that's super awesome. That's exactly what we want. And we're really hoping that through this um, podcast, everyone will be able to learn a little bit more about both of these topics. And I'm going to share my screen um, briefly with um, some slides about the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative and just some background information about um, lung cancer. So ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness for lung cancer and lung cancer screening. And we are a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. And lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. But lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. And the screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 70%. So we believe that educating people about lung cancer, lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. 
So far, we've given over 120 presentations on lung cancer, lung cancer screening to a variety of audiences, including universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations across the US, as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico. And we've reached over 10,000 people. And over the last year, we've worked with 105 mayors from every single US state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And we've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including Arizona State Senator Leela Alston, who is a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and the Lieutenant Governor of Colorado, Diane Primavera, to increase awareness of lung cancer screening. And in addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started a podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and advocates to share their stories. And last fall, ALSI worked with the U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions, recognizing the importance of early detection of lung cancer through screening. And in December of 2020, the Senate resolution was passed um, with unanimous consent, marking the first time the U.S. Senate has ever recognized the importance of lung cancer screening. And ALSI has also actively been working with Representative Brendan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine's Law for Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. And lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using low-dose computed tomography scan. And this scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, also known as the USPSTF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. And right now, they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80, who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more, and who are current or former smokers who quit within the past 15 years, get annual low-dose CT scans. And one pack a year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year. Therefore, 20 pack years can be met by smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. And if you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria that we, we just mentioned, please share the link given by the QR code so they can get in contact with one of our doctors about lung cancer screening. And finally, we want to highlight that there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to the lungs. And we believe that it is important to recognize that there are additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. We have a couple of questions prepared for Eric, but we also have a Q&A session at the end where you all can submit any questions that you have um, for Eric. And this podcast is being recorded and will be shared on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. So first off, Eric, um, could you please introduce yourself and share your background? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Eric Hale. Uh, Currently, I'm actually going to be 40 next month. So uh, I was diagnosed when I was 30 years old um, with stage 3A adenocarcinoma, lung cancer. Um, 
very out of the blue. Um, as a healthy non-smoking 30-year-old, it's just not something you see that often. Even now, I only know a, a handful of other people that were around my age when they were diagnosed um, who are non-smoking. So um, basically went through chemo and radiation um, shortly thereafter finding out uh, after being misdiagnosed for a few months. Um, and then had a lobectomy to remove half of my left lung and a bunch of lymph nodes in the chest. So um, that worked really well. I wasn't given much of a chance up front. I think uh, one doctor had quoted me at the time um, that I had about a 4% chance to live another five years, which uh, as you can imagine is um, some statistics that you don't really wanna hear uh, going into that. So, uh, but until 2019, I was fine. I had recovered from the surgery and all the treatments and was doing well and healthy. And I had a recurrence in 2019, um, which was a, uh, a much easier surgery as far as thoracic surgery goes, which is not very easy by any means, uh, but basically removed a bunch of mediastinal lymph nodes and they found cancer in two of them. Um, but two out of eight that were removed um, is still not bad. And since then I've been healthy and clean bill of health uh, on the CT scan. So we're happy about that. That's awesome. That's really great to hear. Um, I wanted to ask uh, what the experience was like when you received your lung cancer diagnosis and maybe what was going through your mind at that time? Well, I was a, I was a preschool teacher at the time uh, out in Berkeley, California. And I remember um, just every day was, was hard for me to breathe. I, I had always had asthma since I was a baby and um, walking upstairs, I, I would go to the gym a lot. So just being on the treadmill and, and just walking, not like running or anything was starting to get really, really laborious. And my inhalers did nothing. I would hit my inhalers and, and you know, a minute or two later, I'm just like, man, I just can't catch my breath, you know? So um, I ended up going to get steroid inhalers. And they were like, well, you've got, you know, asthma problems, so we'll give you these. I had a really severe reaction, almost like the worst pneumonia of my life. And, and my lungs pretty much got like achy to the point where I could barely breathe. Then I got diagnosed with a fungal infection. Uh, put on more medication, so on and so forth. This kind of went on for a few months. And then finally, um, I, was, I was at work one day in the preschool and on my lunch break, and I got a call from the doctor after having a needle biopsy when they finally were like, we have no idea, you know? And, uh, and they told me it was lung cancer. And so there I am on my lunch break at the preschool with a class full of four-year-olds. And I'm like, okay, I don't, this is not something I've even ever considered was going to happen to me, especially not at this age as a non-smoker. You know, I think the campaigns, especially when I was growing up in the 80s of 90s and 90s to stop smoking and, and you know, you won't get lung cancer. I was like, OK, uh, but it was just a sense of shock. Um, I, I I couldn't really digest it. I, I didn't know what to do next. You know, the doctor said we'll be in touch to tell you, you know, talk about next steps. And I'm just like, OK. Um, I told my boss who said, leave right now, like, why are you still here, basically? Um, and so I go home and I think it really hit me when um, I saw my roommate um, at the apartment and I had known her for uh, really since like preschool, basically. And so uh, I told her and I just broke down. I, I was like, I can't believe this is real. Like it finally started to feel real to me. And uh, there's more to it, but, but you know, I'd say even that first week, I don't even remember much of it only because it was like still a sense of shock. And I was just trying to figure out what this meant for me. Like, what treatments do I have to go through? What am I going to do? Do I keep working? Like, can I keep working? Like, what's going to change for me? Right. There was just 
all these unanswered questions and as good as the medical field was, I mean, they saved my life, absolutely. But at the time, especially, I think this is changing now, but there wasn't a lot of guidance. It was just like, well, you'll do chemo, you'll do radiation and we'll have the surgery to pull your lung out. And then, you know, you can go back about your life. And I'm like, okay, I guess like, let's do that then, you know? So, um, but that was, that was the basics of it. It was just like shock, awe, like, where do I go from here? You know, and will I even have a life in five years to live even after this? Yeah, I, I can't, I can't imagine. I'm sure there must've been so many unanswered questions and I, everything in, in your life must've been on hold for, for a little bit after hearing that diagnosis. Definitely. Um, and I just wanted to ask what were the weeks leading up to the diagnosis like, and like during those weeks of not knowing what it was and going through these different um, tests to try to figure out maybe what the, what the problems were, did you have any idea that it could be lung cancer? Did anyone tell you that maybe that was an option? No idea, no idea at all. I, you know, I, it was, it was the kind of thing where I didn't worry about it because why would I have lung cancer, right? Like why in the world would that be my, my future? So it was more, I was annoyed. I was like, why are these asthma problems coming back now when I've had them under control for so long? And uh, so, yeah, I, it was, it was really just like annoyance with like, all right, I keep trying these things that don't work and it's getting worse and also not being able to breathe. I remember I woke up um, Thanksgiving morning. We had, we had had Thanksgiving at, at a friend's house and slept over. And I woke up early in the morning, like so short of breath. That I, I asked my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, I said, I need to go to the ER. Like, I feel like I'm going to pass out. I can't even take a full breath of, of air. So it was, it was more just like concern about why it's happening, but I did not in, in any sense think it was lung cancer and nobody told me that either like no one assumed that like hey you're a 30 year old non-smoker it's probably lung cancer I mean no one in the right mind even today would say that right so yeah it was hard to determine for sure yeah I think we see a lot of similarities with um, different individuals we've talked to such as when they receive their diagnosis they're almost like why me like why did I deserve this um, I presume you were healthy you were also non-smokers so what was, um, how did your life change after your diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, obviously I basically stopped working right away. Um, we started seeing doctors pretty much every day. Like, I, I think I had like three phone calls the very next day, one with the surgeon, one with radiation, and one with um, the chemotherapy department. And they were just like, all right, we're gonna get you set up for the next five weeks of radiation. You're gonna be coming in this time, this time. We're gonna get you set up with chemo. You're gonna be scheduled for this surgery on you know, this date. And we're gonna have to run tests and see how much we're gonna remove and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, like, I, I don't really have time to think about this. I can't say no, like if I wanna live, then like, I just have to do this, right? So it was uh, it was just hit the ground running and I, and. I didn't really have a lot of fear at the time just because I was so busy, like thinking about like, I just need to do this and get past it. Like, just get, get it done. Like, let's just do this. Let's solve it. Let's keep me alive. Like whatever we need to do. And uh, my surgeon at the time who, who I, I certainly credit for saving my life, he was wonderful. Like he really was like, we're going to solve this. We're going to have surgery. We're going to get this out of you. You're going to survive. Like he, he was one of the only ones at the time that was like giving me a little bit of hope. Um, just because those statistics and I didn't know anyone else with lung cancer at the time, I didn't have a lot of hope right off the bat. I was just kind of like, okay, like I'm going to do this, but like, it, 
probably seems like I'm not going to make it with, with what everyone's telling me. So what does that mean for the rest of my life? You know, I, at that point, wasn't married, didn't have children, you know, hadn't really, hadn't really developed my career, didn't own a home, like all these milestones that you think about in life. I was like, I guess I just won't do these. Like, I guess my, my timeline is just really truncated now and I have to figure out some other things to do with my life. So it was basically a lot of confusion and just like, eyes forward let's get it done uh, it's pretty crazy at a young age this all happened and could you tell me about uh, what kind of treatments options did you have yeah so um, right off the bat I mean they had said that chemo radiation and surgery was going to be the trifecta there at the time this was certainly the way to, to treat it. Um, this is before a lot of other therapies had been introduced, but even so, I, I think at that staging, at that time, um, and even today, it, they'd address it the same way. So I went on a chemotherapy program of cisplatin and etoposide. So we did um, a few cycles of that, um, where I ended up losing my hair um, and I had extreme fatigue. Um, but I, other than that, I actually didn't have like nausea. I didn't have like a lot of the other symptoms that people say they have a chemo and I was very grateful for that. And uh, similar with radiation. So I did, I believe it was five weeks of radiation to my chest um, to reduce the tumor growth. And, um, you know, they had told me I'm going to have all these skin burns and like all these things. I really had almost nothing. And I was also really grateful for that because it sounded really uh, terrible. Um, but I, I mean, I was in very good shape, good health when I went into it. So I, I'm thinking that, you know, that had something to do with it. Just, just going in like, um, sturdy and ready to, ready to tackle it. So the surgery of, of the three treatments was by far the worst. It was, you know, we're talking major surgery where they, where they opened up my whole back to remove half a left lung. And I woke up, you know, in, in a, in a drugged out haze, like that whole first 24 hours, I kind of knew I was in the hospital, but I didn't really know. People were like talking to me and I could barely respond. And then when I finally was aware enough to know what was going on, I have these plastic tubes sticking out of my chest, draining you know blood and, and all kinds of fluid into this, essentially this plastic box. And uh, I, I can't, I, like I can barely pull in any air. I've got oxygen hooked up, IVs all over. Yeah, I felt like Frankenstein a little bit, right? Like I was like, I, I can't move. I mean, some of the worst pain of my life. I had an epidural that had slipped out at night. And so I went from having like not too much pain to like instantly, like more pain than I can describe to you in, in words that I have. It, it felt like having your soul stripped out of your body is the best way that I can explain it. Um, so that that was definitely uh, and, and my doctor said because i had more muscle tone than uh like let's say a typical 70 year old lung cancer patient going through this they cut through more tissue <laughs> so it, it actually hurt more they said than someone that was older going through this and so um i was in the hospital for nine days just just trying to get strong enough to get out of bed and you know i had to have someone help me to walk 50 feet down the hallway at which point I was like, I need to go lay back down, like almost immediately. It was so much exertion. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll stop there because there's more to the recovery process, but it was essentially chemo radiation and surgery. So before deciding upon that, the route that you would eventually chose, did you explore any alternative treatments? Yeah, we, um, you know, at the time, you got to remember this is 2013. There wasn't a lot of options. Um, you know, I know now 
Uh, I have an EGFR mutation, um, which is something important to know for anyone else watching with lung cancer or, or thinking about this into the future. But uh, there was Tarsiva that came out shortly, I believe, after I was diagnosed, and Tegriso now is another one. You know, these are drugs that can reduce tumor growth if you are, are inoperable. Um, but really, at the time, I didn't have anything. And so we got second opinions at UCSF. We got second opinions at Stanford just to make sure. And, and you know, we spent a ton of money out of pocket to make that happen. But we felt we needed the assurance that we were doing the right thing because we had one shot to keep me alive. Like if we make the wrong choice, I'm gone. You don't get that back. Right. So um, doing that reassured us. Uh, we basically were told at the time the same thing um, from from everyone. And so we were like, OK, this is the course of treatment. Like this is our choice. So um, the only other thing I did was we did a little research on a few other supplements that are not studied in the U.S., but there's some studies in Germany and Japan about uh, turkey tail mushroom and uh, hinocchiol, magnolia bark. And so I started taking those um, just daily. Uh, and I figured, you know, we didn't know if they could help, but they weren't going to hurt. And I was like, so if there's anything I can do that's going to give me a better chance, I'll do that. Um, and I've also since then played with the keto diet a little bit because, you know, there's some research that says um, sugar feeds cancer cells. And so with the keto diet, you reduce your sugars. Um, with the idea of, okay, well, if we're starving the cells of sugar, then they're not gonna grow. Uh, again, I am not advocating that this is the solution, but I'm just putting it out there that we tried that and I've also been alive for, you know, all this time after being told I wouldn't. So there's there's something to it maybe, uh, and it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I think a lot of patients um, contemplate whether or not to get multiple opinions. And then um, ultimately for, for a lot of people, I think it's difficult to, ensure that they're choosing the right team and the right treatment plan. And so how did you make that decision? It was really faith in the system, A. Um, it was really not knowing any better. <laughs> I didn't know at the time to advocate for myself. Like I just figured the doctors are gonna know what to do and I'll just let them do it. Um, I only found out later that there are other options uh, that I had to ask and advocate for genetic testing. It Back then it wasn't done automatically. Um, so there were a lot of things that just because I hadn't had a lot of experience or talked to anyone else that had had lung cancer, I, I didn't know, right? So um, it, it was really trust in the system, but also I, I really trusted my surgeon. Like he, he went out to make sure that I felt comfortable and that he knew that they were going to do everything possible to make sure I lived. So that gave me some comfort at the time. That's great. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you didn't really receive no guidance or help throughout your treatment, um, such as radiation and chemotherapy. So how was it um, like navigating it? And did you notice any side effects um, after? Yeah, the um, I would say that the chemo really it was just the, the like I had to take three hour long naps during the day. I just like it was to the point where I couldn't stay awake um, and then I lost all my hair which I have a lot of hair, if you can see, you know, so, uh, but uh, there was, I thought I wouldn't lose my hair. I went through about a week or a week and a half doing chemo. And then one day in the shower, it just all came out. And I was like, all right, I'll just shave it. If we're going that route, let's just do it. So I kind of took control of it in that way. And that empowered me a little bit with uh, at least that part of it. Um, and then uh, the radiation, I mean, man, I got so lucky. I had really nothing. I can't even say I had a single side effect. And uh, so I was really grateful there, but um, 
it was really just giving myself the time to rest from the fatigue of the chemo. Like I spent a lot of time at my apartment um, reading fantasy books because it was a way for my brain to kind of escape. Um, I had read like the whole like Game of Thrones series then, series then, because it was like so long that I had time to actually put into it. Um, I played like RPG video games like Final Fantasy and stuff because I had the time and it was another way to distract my brain from what was going on in my real life. So I felt like that was that was a good crutch for me um, while going through those treatments. Um, surgery was different. I mean, I won't even go into that because it was like the first three months of that was like, uh, I, I barely remember it. I was like so doped up and it was just um, brutal. <laughs> so it wasn't quite as nice as uh, just sitting home reading books, but uh, I still did some of the same things to pass that time after the fact. And for your surgery, what did the days looking um, leading up to your surgery look like, your lobectomy especially? I was nervous, you know. Um, my girlfriend, uh, my wife now, she, she was nervous too. It's, you know, it was an eight hour surgery, you know? And so I'm, I'm under for eight hours. And whenever you're under general anesthesia that long with really having your chest open um, in a room, things can happen. You can get blood clots, you can have all kinds of stuff go wrong. And I was young, so I was, I was set up to, to succeed there as far as my age and my health. But, you know, my, my grandfather had diabetes and had to have a leg amputated and he died in that, that surgery. Um, so this is how that I knew that he had died. And so it was on my mind that this could happen. We weren't trying to focus on it, but we were just trying to prepare ourselves and say, okay, you know, we just got to do this. And it was, again, like I said, eyes forward, matter of fact, we're going into it, we're doing it and we'll come out the other side. And I, I had the easy part. I mean, I was asleep. Um, my wife was in the hospital for all eight hours of that surgery, sitting in the lobby, you know, just waiting to see if I would wake up. And so she, she was the one that I think had it, had it harder than me, but she was there after I woke up. And I remember that a little bit like, okay, I'm alive. She's there. Okay. Like I'm good. I can, I can kind of put my head down again. So, yeah. Uh, so prior to your like diagnosis, did you have any misconception about lung cancer? I would put it like this. I didn't have any conceptions. Like I, it, it, to me at the time, you know, this is a smoker's disease. If I don't smoke, I don't get it. A plus B equals C, right? Uh, but I learned so much more after the fact. But at the time it was like, you know, again, why would this ever happen to me? Um, I think for sure, and, and I know that this is still the stigma and this is something that I kind of speak out against as far as smoking. It's not just a smoker's disease. Um, we know so many, so many people now who are never smokers and smokers who have quit years and years ago, they're getting it. Young people, veterans, uh, women, there's just so many people getting this that are not smokers. I think it's unfair to bucket it as a smoker's cancer. And, and again, this is part of the reason why it's been so hard to fund research because a lot of people think, well, you smoked. So not to say that you deserve it, but what did you expect? Right. And I, I think we need to smash that stigma because also the more research funding that goes into lung cancer, it's solving for other cancers now. We know that some of these uh, genetic therapies and, and all kinds of other things that are happening, they're being brought to the forefront by lung cancer research and they're helping lots of other cancer uh, areas and cancer research. So it's really like the rising tide lifts all ships in this case, where I think like, if we can fund lung cancer and not stigmatize it as like, oh, it's just a thing that lifelong smokers get, you know, that's gonna matter in the long run. That's gonna save people's lives. And 
you know, like we said, more more women are getting it who are never smokers, veterans. Uh, these are people that don't deserve it either, but they are getting it, and we need to know why. I think that's a, such an important point that um, I think one of the reasons that we don't know why is that a lot of clinical trials, large cl clinical trials that have um, that the USPSTF have used to inform their own guidelines, the 2021 lung cancer screening guidelines that we talked about earlier, those, um, for example, in, in the national lung screening trial, only 4% of participants were African-American. And I think it's that disparity in lung cancer research and clinical trials and enrollment and all sorts of things like that, that contribute to um, not being able to develop guidelines that may, uh, may maximize the number of uh, under underrepresented or um, minority um, individuals who are able to to get lung cancer screening. I think um, the stigma that you mentioned, it's so important that we we smash that, like you said, because for some people, just the, the stigma that, you know, um, if they are a smoker that I got lung cancer because I smoke might discourage them from getting screened and and seeking out treatment because they might they might think or other people might have and that they don't deserve that. And I think that's one of the reasons why, one of the many reasons why lung cancer, the lung cancer screening rate is far lower at only 6% when compared to the screening rates for other cancers that are about 70%. And, and you mentioned funding as well. Um, lung cancer, it, it receives far less funding than breast cancer, which um, in 2020 received over $500 million. And so it's, um, there, I think there are lots of reasons why um, research in lung cancer is um, is still being is still being done and, and we definitely need to put more efforts into um, ensuring that we we're able to include minority and underrepresented communities in in this research so that we can better target them as well absolutely 100 percent Prior to your uh, lung cancer diagnosis, had you heard about lung cancer screening? And if so, did you have any concerns or misconceptions that were kind of at the back of your mind throughout the process? I knew about lung cancer screening, um, but it, it wasn't even an option for me, right? Like as a non-smoker at my age, there was just like, I couldn't even go to my doctor and say, hey, I want this, right? Like I had to be exhibiting pretty severe symptoms already. Um, to even get to the point where I could get a biopsy done and figure out what was going on. So I think screening is a, is a fabulous tool, especially low dose CT. Um, you know, I, we've, I've been working with the GoTo Foundation for, for years now to try to get the age lowered, to try to get that opened up and covered by insurance. Um, what's the answer for young people that are gonna be diagnosed? I don't know, because you're not gonna have a healthy 25 year old walk into your doctor's office and say, hey, let's give you a low dose CT just to make sure you don't have lung cancer because it's just so rare, right? So with the low dose CT screenings, which are really important, I think we also need to push forward uh, genetic testing, right? Are there biomarkers that we could be finding out about ahead of time um, that could have determined that I was gonna get this before it happened, right? Is there anything we could have done earlier to catch it at stage one rather than stage 3A? Uh, I don't know, right? I think that that research is coming along, um, but it's TBD, right? We, we need to know more, we need to figure that out. But I think that is the future of cancer, uh, cancer research and uh, diagnosis. I've, I've talked to many oncologists who believe that we're really at a tipping point in making cancer a chronic disease, not a fatal disease. And that's a big part of it, is this genetic testing to figure it out ahead of time. So I'm 
been in huge support of both screening and the genetic testing. Can you talk a little bit about um, the process of getting a CT scan for, for those who may not have experienced that? Sure, yeah. I have had, uh, I just counted after my last CT scan and I've had five or 35 CT scans in my life now, uh, which is more than average <laughs> than the average person gets in their life. Um, it's, I, I'm a little claustrophobic. So um, the CT is, I was nervous when I first got it because I know it's like an MRI type machine, but it's pretty open. Um, so it's actually much easier than an MRI to get. Uh, basically what they do is they put the IV in you and they put contrast in your body um, and then they run you through the CT. It takes like a few minutes. It's very quick. Um, and they basically take that imaging of your chest with the dye in there to show if any uptake of that dye is going places where it shouldn't be going, right? Essentially, if you have cancer, this dye is going to be sucked up into those cells and that's how they're going to be able to tell, uh, okay, we know something is here. What is it? Now, the challenging thing for me is my chest is kind of like a war zone, right? So how do you know what's what? Is something an artifact from surgery? You know, is something, is there something to be worried about? So we, we do compare CTs over time just to make sure little nodules that pop up are maybe scar tissue, maybe just an artifact on the imaging or a different part that they sliced that they didn't get last time. Um, and then we just compare to see if there's anything wrong, right? To see if anything looks flagrantly out of uh, out of the norm. But anyway, it, it's it's something really simple. Um, you just go in real quick, get the IV, get it done. So I I would say 100% of the time it, it's better to just go in and get the CD, CT and know than not know. Because um, again, lung cancer is one of these things that it's treatable if you catch it in an early stage. Usually, just surgery to get the tumor out, and that's it it's much, much, much harder later stage. And uh, we're getting better at treating that, but still get those screenings, uh, it's, it's worth it. I totally agree with you. Uh, were there any like strategies uh, you used to like get through the, like difficult times during like diagnosis or treatment? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned a little like uh, just kind of distracting myself with like fantasy books and video games and, you know, just, just trying to focus on like what made me happy during that time. Um, Cause there's sure enough to be depressed about when you're going through treatment and you're faced with this stuff. So uh, also as much as like I was able, I went from, you know, being active and working out almost every day in the gym for at least an hour or two to not right. So uh, from the fatigue of the chemo, I, I would try to take at least like a 20, 30 minute walk every day on the days where I could just to get outside and remind myself that there are other humans in the world because I was mostly either getting radiated in a room with a drip in my arm with chemo going in or at home, right? So I just saw four walls all the time. And as much as you have support from other people, life goes on for everyone. And you're kind of almost like stuck in time, just waiting this out. So. Um, it's kind of maddening. It almost feels like jail at some point where you're just not in the world. And so my advice for anyone else going through it is find what makes you happy, right? Find the things that you can find joy in, even when things are hard and be kind to yourself. If you're exhausted, sleep, like don't push yourself to like do things that you normally would do when you're not dealing with this. Um, if you need to talk to someone, talk to someone, right? And we'll probably talk about this later, but not everyone is going to be open to talking to you during this. You, sometimes, it's too much for someone even close to you to know that you have cancer and you may pass. And 
you kind of have to respect that, right? Like I'm not going to shove myself into someone's life when they're not comfortable talking to me about this and not even about cancer. Like just spend time with me. Like you can come over and watch Netflix or, you know, we can go get a cup of coffee or, you know, whatever it is, like, let me live a normal life beside you. Right. Don't let me, let me take a few minutes and not have to think or talk about cancer. Right. I know it's there, you know, it's there but let's try to be normal at least for a little bit, right? Very interesting you say that. And I think that's very helpful to a lot of people who may be dealing with family members or like friends who, who are dealing with lung cancer. You know, it's, I feel like it's a tough time to realize how you should deal with it and just treat everything like everything's okay. Um, so what motivates you to share your, your story so publicly? Uh, I'm pretty gregarious, I guess. I'd probably share it anyway, <laughs> but uh, it's smashing taboos for me. Um, I, as I got lung cancer and, and met more people with lung cancer and just cancer in general, you know, it's almost like a word we don't want to talk about in public until it hits someone, either you or a friend or a family member. And I think that's a disservice, right? I think that if we can't talk about it, we can't normalize it. We can't talk about the challenges to mental health that it brings up, depression, anxiety, PTSD. We can't even talk about funding that research that we talked about before if we don't speak about it, right? So I almost talk about it in normal terms. Like I'm not shy about telling even somebody I just met, like, hey, I had lung cancer, you know? And sometimes people are like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, why you didn't do it, you know? Uh, but like, we need to talk about it like it's the weather or like it's a baseball game or because I, I and, and not to say we need to like normalize it that way like oh it's just lung cancer right but to talk about it so that we can all openly talk about it and solve it right solve it help other people going through it i guarantee if you don't now you will know someone at some point in your life who will have lung cancer it's going to happen right so how can we start now to open that conversation up and so that people will be more open to going to get screening so that they will be able to navigate this easier. So um, I kind of do that with all taboo subjects, but I just happen to be kind of the spokesman for this one. <laughs> yeah, well, we really admire your efforts um, in the lung cancer community. And we just wanted to ask if you could describe some of the things that you're currently doing um, to help out that lung cancer community. Yeah, yeah, this is a this is timed well because uh, I know that we just had the go-to foundation for lung cancer. We did our push um, for Washington DC to pass um, the Women in, Women in Lung Cancer Screening Act and uh, to get more federal funding this year for lung cancer research. Um, as we talked about, lung cancer research is at like a pretty, uh, a pretty lousy level compared to some other funding of cancers. So um, we just did that push. We just met with, I met uh, personally with the senators here from Colorado and my congressman as well, um, which I was thrilled that um, Congressman Aguse, uh, he actually co-sponsored the bill that we were asking him to sponsor. So that was really fantastic. And I was really happy to see that. And I appreciate his support. Um, so we do that annually, right? We do that uh, to try to get more funding for research. Uh, it's better now than it's been. I don't think the full ask went through, but you know, at this point we'll take what we can get and we'll push for more next year um, and continue to just bang on that door. Um, I always tell people, if you don't like what's happening in Washington, show up and make noise because that's how things get done. And I've seen it happen time and time again. If you just complain about it and do nothing, then nothing changes, right? So um, for anyone that has lung cancer or wants to support 
uh, write your senators, write your congressmen, uh, get involved with nonprofits like GoTo and other other nonprofits um, like the one you guys are hosting right now. Uh, get involved and and explain to your representatives why this is important, even at a local level, mayors, governors. Um, you got to get out there and make your voice heard. And uh, I actually look forward to you know in COVID times we haven't been able to do it in person, but um, I've been to the Senate and and the House of Representatives in person a, a few times with the foundation to talk in person. I think that's important. I think it really grounds it in reality that like, I'm a young dude and this happens to me. Like this is, this is for real. It's no joke, you know? So, uh, hope to do more of that in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much for all your work. We really appreciate it. Um, and just last question from us. Um, we wanted to ask that, you know, having cancer changes so much about life in general. And so what words of wisdom do you have for people post-cancer as far as being able to live a full life once more? There's a lot, <laughs> but uh, I would say, don't let the fact that you had cancer run your life. Um, don't worry that it's gonna come back someday. It came back for me and it came back 2013 to 2019. It was a bunch of years. I could have worried that whole time that it was gonna come back, but it would have done nothing for me, right? If it comes back again, I'm not worried about it now because I can't do anything about it, right? So is worrying gonna help? No. Can you get back out into the world? Can you find things that you love? Uh, when I when I first got diagnosed from cancer, um, when I came back, I, I did a whole career change, right? Like um, after getting the 2019 recurrence, we moved from California to Colorado. We had our son, we bought a house. Like there's all these things that are still available to you as long as you don't let the fact that you had cancer kind of stop you from living your life. Um, I try to live with intention now. Um, I'm, I'm annoyingly positive on social media with posts about how to support others and be kind because I think that's the point of life, right? Like, what are we doing here if we're not helping others and lifting each other up and uh, making this world a better place for each other? So I, I just try and do that as much as possible. Um, it's not that I don't have like the normal issues that people have every day dealing with the DMV, taxes, whatever, right? Um, but I just try not to let them affect me as much. And uh, this also ties into the book I wrote. I, I said to myself, you know, like, I, I've never written a book before, but why not, right? Like what's stopping me from doing anything I wanna do? Um, similarly, Project Koru is another nonprofit that takes young adult cancer survivors on excursions after or during uh, diagnosis even to, to do surfing excursions and get back out and experience their new body after cancer. And uh, I'm volunteering um, to be a, basically a camp counselor with that group. And I'm really looking forward to mentoring other young people that have gone through this and are at that confusing stage that I was at where I didn't have a whole lot of hope. And I want to be able to tell them there's hope out there, right? Like you just need to find it. You need to stay strong and know that there are ways forward from this and, and to get more information because information is is really your your weapon against this thing. So um, just get out there and live and be kind. And like my shirt says, be excellent to each other, right? That's the secret. <laughs> no, I think it's great. Um, you're doing so many things for your community and um, I applaud you on that. But um, if you had to sum up your journey in one sentence, what would it be? I'd just use one word, I would say grateful. Um, I think that I, I, I would never say that I would want to go through it again, right? Like I don't think that cancer was a good experience, um, 
but it gave me a perspective that I never would have had otherwise. And I don't know where my life would be if I didn't get cancer in many ways. Um, it was formative to the way that I see the world. It was formative to what I think is important in my life and the life of others, my relationships, how much I even appreciate each day. Um, it helps me maintain my focus on that we are all temporary, all of us, whether we get lung cancer or not. And how do we want to live that life in a positive, intentional way each day? And so um, that's about the long and short of it. Great. I think that's really inspiring. So I think that concludes our follow-up questions. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Hale, for taking time out of your day to share your story with us. Um, I'd like to open the floor for our participants to ask you any questions they may have regarding you or your story, and if they feel and if you feel comfortable sharing them. Um, so if you guys would like to ask Mr. Hale a question, please put it in chat or unmute. question submitted um, and the person asks, uh, what are the current challenges that the lung cancer community faces? Um, kind of what we touched on before is funding for research. Like um, I have a bunch of friends who are, you know, stage four um, and running out of time. And, uh, you know, we have these great, these great drugs and therapies that are keeping them alive much longer than years previous. But we need to find a solution to this for them to stay with us and uh, for other people that are going to be diagnosed. Um, I know my friend Liz, uh, she's basically my age. I think she was one older, one year older than me um, with a young family and she just passed from lung cancer. And that hit hard because uh, we had the same diagnosis, you know, and uh, it was just luck of the draw, I guess, that I made it and she passed. And I've, I've lost too many friends to this disease. So we got to get that funding pushed through. I mean, I think we were getting 25 million this year. I, I think that's what it was, but that's ridiculously small compared to how much money runs through Washington. I mean, we need to be doing better. Um, and once we can do that, once we can save more lives, that is gonna give me more hope um, that we're crushing this disease. And I think we will. I really think in our lifetimes, lung cancer and all cancer really is gonna be uh, a chronic illness that people can live with or be eliminated completely. We're seeing some of this in studies now. Um, we got to get there. We got to we got to treat it with urgency, the same kind of urgency we we treated uh, COVID with up front. I want to see that kind of effort and energy put into this. Thank you. Um, I, Shreya has submitted a question um, in the chat and I can just read it out. She says, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was so inspiring to hear. I was wondering, I believe you mentioned that you're working with the GoTo Foundation on expanding eligibility criteria for lung cancer screening. What sort of eligibility requirements are they pushing for? In other words, what age group or smoking pack years are they currently pushing for, for lung cancer screening to expand it to more people? Yeah, I, I can't quote the exact uh, statistics on that, but I know that we're we're aiming to get it to uh, get a group of people at a broader age range. Age range. So we're trying to lower the age for screening. Um, we're trying to also make sure that veterans are captured in that group. Um, so it's really just about 
kind of pushing the edges on what the current boundaries are, right? Expand from there. Um, like I said, we're not going to capture everyone. You're not going to have a CT scan for a five-year-old, right, with, for lung cancer. But the more people that we can get in that box of I'm eligible for screening, uh, the more we're going to catch, right? Um, like, for instance, for me, if, if by chance 30 had been uh, the place to go for that low end of screening, they would have caught mine. They would have caught mine. Right. So I'm not saying that's going to happen, but we need to keep expanding that bucket. Oh, thank you for that. Um, we just received another question in the chat um, from Alex. Um, thank you for all that you shared. I wanted to know what was your experience like for your then girlfriend, now wife, friends and family while you were battling lung cancer? Do you have any suggestions for people whose family members or friends who are dealing with cancer? Yeah, this is this is a good one because even though the people in your life um, are not going through cancer, they are experiencing it right alongside you, and um, it's really challenging, right? You know, my my girlfriend, uh, my wife now, you know, she she didn't know if she was going to have a partner, um, didn't know if we would be able to build that future together, right? Um, she even said to me when I when I told her I was diagnosed that day, she said to me that night, we're getting married. Like, that's the first thing she said to me, you know, so it was it was dedication right from the start. But I think the thing to note is that's not going to be the case for everyone. Right. Everyone has different levels of comfortability. And it's hard to say that you need to do this because you're the patient going through it. But you kind of need to respect that. Right. If someone's not comfortable talking to you about this and they kind of withdraw from your life. You kind of got to let that happen and you got to hold on to the people in your life that are going to be there to support you, the ones that are going to show up. And it, I don't even feel badly about some folks that I lost touch with at that time because I got it. Like I understood that's a heavy thing to deal with at a young age. Um, but to ask also your caregivers too, how are you doing? Are you okay? To maybe ask their friends, right? can you support them for a second? Like, I know I'm the one with the cancer, but they need some love too, you know? Um, so really just not, not treating them as just like, a, oh yeah, you're there, it's fine. But like, what can I do for you also, right? I, I think that's really important. Right after receiving the lung cancer diagnosis, although your mind might be a million different places, what, what would you say are some good questions to ask? Uh, knowing what I know now, I would have immediately said, I want genetic testing right away, um, because that would have expanded my treatment options. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. And, and I, th I think most doctors are getting better about talking about that, but, um, it was not the case for me at the time. So, uh, people need to know that your only options now are not radiation, chemo and surgery. And depending on staging, again, you have to get different opinions. Like for my recurrence, I also got uh, multiple opinions. And it was my oncologist at the time said, let's do surgery again. You did really well with it the first time. This is a chance to do really well with it again. And the two other oncologists I talked to said, forget surgery at your stage. You're basically stage four. Uh, let's put you on Tegrisso essentially. But I know that Tegrisso has only so much time span of its effective life. So did the math and I'm like, okay, I'm still young. If I need to use this later, I'm not going to have that option. So I'm like, why don't I, why don't I just, you know, go down the list of things that could potentially save me and then hold that in my back pocket. But the fact that I even have that to Grisso in my back pocket now 
is because of the genetic testing. Um, and I know that it's available to me. Um, aside of that, I would just bring someone else with you to document and ask questions. It is too challenging as the patient to remember everything, to remember every question you want to ask, to remember all the information thrown at you. So have someone literally with like a, a note app or a, a physical notepad to write down these things so you can talk about it later and get those other opinions too. Because that, like I said before, information is power for you in this case. Um, and I would say also talk to a nonprofit like GoTo, uh, Bonnie Adario. It was the Bonnie Adario Foundation at the time and the Lung Cancer Alliance. And Bonnie called me because a friend had passed my number along, knew of the foundation. And she gave me a hell of a lot of hope when I really was down. And uh, having that knowledge and talking to someone, like even me, if anyone's, if anyone's watching this and uh, you need someone to talk to, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you about like your chances here because the chances are good. We have a lot going for us now in the lung cancer community. Um, but you need that hope to keep going. If you don't have that hope, it's really hard to fight. And, and it is a fight, especially in that early, uh, in the early stages of diagnosis. It's really impressive how uh, lung cancer changed how you like look at the world in a better way. So I, I, that's really impressive. I also had a question. How can you like best educate the upcoming generation about lung, uh, lung cancer screening? National campaigns. I think if we have more national campaigns that are getting out there, um, you know, we have a lot of this for breast cancer with October and everything is pink, right? That's about really getting mammograms and, and making sure that gets out there. Um, I don't think we're doing enough to say that this is an option available for people um, and, and how important it is to get screened. Uh, doing some of this advocacy work, I met a gentleman a few years ago who um, he was he was a veteran and I think he was in his 60s or 70s. But anyway, he, he was eligible for the screening. He went in, even though he felt fine, and they caught stage one lung cancer and it saved his life, right? More stories like that getting out to the public, whether it's through social media, through organizations like you guys, um, or through advertising campaigns, that's really what we need because a lot of people don't even know it exists. Um, I think that wraps up our Q&A session. Again, thank you so much, Mr. Harrell, for your willingness to share your story and perspective on many of the pressing issues in the lung cancer community. We appreciate the work that you're doing to help raise awareness about lung cancer. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining our podcast. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming events and podcasts, which will be listed on our website, www.lc.org. We also encourage you to join our monthly newsletter, where we will share updates on upcoming projects within our organization. Please fill out this Google form if you would like to be added to our mailing list. And before we end this, we would also like to offer a brochure highlighting some key information about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. If you find this helpful or know of anyone who might benefit from the information included in the brochure, feel free to share it. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you so much, Mr. Hale, for being here with us. Um, it was a super pleasant time talking with you. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.